All right, we're going to be in the book of Psalms because we have been in the Psalms for four weeks. This is going to be our fifth week in the Psalms. You guys like the Psalms? Amen, you do. You guys are excited this morning. I feel good about this. So uh, I tell you what, we're going to start in, in a few different Psalms, but uh, you don't have to turn to any particular place right now. You can follow along there in your bulletin and right up here on the screen with me. I got several verses, but, uh, but here's what I want to do. I want us to just pray together before we get started. And, and just bless the people. I want to pray this morning. Uh, uh, somebody gave me a, a, a little bit of a word this morning about themselves and just about what the Lord was doing. It kind of stuck out to me. And, and, and it was that uh, the, Lord, the Lord wants to deal with our wounds. Amen. And I believe one of the way that, ways that he deals with, with our wounds is through prayer and through opening up to him. But I, I, just, I know that people are dealing with just different things right now. And it may be, it may be that you're dealing with a spiritual wound, an emotional wound. Could be that you're dealing with something physical right now. I mean, I've been I've been dealing with some kind of weird sickness for about a week, and I'm just going to go ahead and say I'm, I'm going to be done with this thing here because I'm tired of it. Amen. Like let's let's just let's just pray for wounds. Let's pray for healing. Would you just close your eyes, bow your head just for a minute? And Lord, we just you have come this morning to deal with our wounds. And God, regardless of what what the message or what the sermon's about, Jesus, you're just, you're a healer. You're a healer of our souls, and you love each and every person that's here this morning, God. You know the wounds that they carry, the hurts that are in their hearts. And Lord Jesus, this morning, I pray that you minister right now to them directly through the power of your spirit, God, that you would just bless their heart, that you would heal their wounds. And God, we pray for those that are, that are sick this morning, that are afflicted, that are dealing with illness because we believe you're healer of all sickness and manner of disease. And so, God, we pray healing. We release that healing. We receive it in our bodies, in our minds, in our hearts, and in our souls. In Jesus' name. And, Lord, we open our hearts, we open our ears to hear your word this morning so that we could be transformed by it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. All right. So... You know, we've been, we've been in the Psalms, we've, we've been in Psalm 23, 34, 91, 119, we've been throughout the Psalms, and you see a lot of different things going on in the Psalms, there's a lot of different themes that are in the Psalms, but one of the things we talked about was that the Psalms are really the Jewish prayer book for the most part. The Psalms were Jesus' prayer book. And, and the Psalms, they teach us how to pray. They teach us how to worship. And when you're reading Psalms, you start to sense this, just this, uh, this, this, this adoration of God, this worship of God, this desire to praise God that starts to flow from you just when, you, just when you're reading the Psalms. Most people don't realize that when you're reading the Psalms, what you're actually reading is you're reading songs that were written. And, and a lot of times these songs were written spontaneously as they were worshiping God in the tabernacle. So David and other ones would be worshiping God in the tabernacle and as God would move their hearts as they were going through the difficulties of life, different things that they were dealing with, they would spontaneously by the Spirit of God begin to sing these songs to the Lord. Now what's so interesting about it, we, we talked about how David has written at least 75 of the 150 Psalms and you've got other people that wrote some of the Psalms, but as they're writing these psalms, they're inspired by God to give this praise. And a lot, of the, a lot of what they're writing is what's going on in their life. They're praying about what's going on in their life, but they're also singing about the difficulties that they're going through. But as they are singing and praying these things to God, the Holy Spirit is influencing them, living on, moving on the inside of them. And as they're singing this, there are prophetic utterances that would take place that would speak about things that would happen a thousand or more years in the future. Isn't that crazy? 
As David is singing, as he's praying, he starts to see and tap into things that were going to happen in the future. He begins to prophesy about Jesus. And you know, in our world today, when, when people are teaching, it's becoming a more and more popular thing to teach that, well, the Old Testament is irrelevant. It's really not that important. But do you realize that the Old Testament is what all of the apostles of the New Testament built their foundational doctrine on? They use the Old Testament. Matter of fact, and I'm not even talking about the New Testament, but the book of Psalms itself, just the book of Psalms, was quoted 116 times in the New Testament. Isn't that amazing? To use and build their doctrine, they quoted Psalms once, they, they quoted the Psalms 116 times. And Jesus himself, if you notice Jesus, just like we talked about last week, about how important memorizing and meditating in Scripture is, we know Jesus did because Jesus, he not only quoted many books of the Bible, but he quoted one book more than any other book. You know what book he quoted more than any other? He quoted the Psalms. He quoted Psalms over and over and over again throughout his ministry when he was dealing with Pharisees, when he was correcting their doctrine and teaching them even about himself, he would often go to the Psalms to point out who he was. He said, it's already been written about me. A dude named David wrote about it a thousand years ago. And now you guys have been waiting on this to happen and I'm showing up and telling you that I am fulfilling what was written about me in the prophets, the law, and in the Psalms. And he comes up and he's showing all these things. He's saying, look, there's nothing, there's nothing new here. You guys are looking for a different Messiah, but it's already been written about me. It's already in the Old Testament and you can build on this from there. And, and Jesus, when he was talking to the Pharisees, one of the things that he said was, you guys search the scriptures. He says, you're in the Bible and the Pharisees, the religious people of that time, they knew the Bible. And he said, you guys are looking in the scriptures. You're searching them because you think that you have life in them. He said, but these are those which testify of me, but you will not come to me that you would have life. Now, last week we talked about valuing God's word, didn't we? We talked about how important the Bible is. But let me tell you something a little bit controversial this morning. The Bible is not an end in and of itself. It's not an end in and of itself. We don't actually even, we don't worship the Bible. Somebody say amen to me this morning. The Bible is a tool that God has given us. When you think word of God, the first thing that you should think of is the eternal word of God, Jesus Christ. When you think word of God, secondarily, you should think of the written scriptures because this is secondary word of God that points us to the ultimate word of God. The Old Testament, every bit of it, every word of it is considered word of God, inspired by God. God breathed and it is, it is infallible. Now, there are some things that you may question. There are some things that cause us to wonder about God's nature and different things. But the Old Testament is really about God leading a people out of dead religion into a real relationship with Christ. It's about learning this lesson because when you read the law, man, you read all kinds of things. When you read in the Old Testament, you realize that there's judgment, there's sin, there's a consequence for sin. And it's like, man, sometimes God seems harsh and I wonder if we should just throw out the Old Testament altogether. But see, if you don't go through the Old Testament, you don't learn to appreciate Christ that the Old Testament is pointing to. He's saying, this is not how it's supposed to be. I'm giving you a covenant to teach you that the most important thing in the world at the end of the day is Jesus Christ. And when he comes, you'll be so glad that he came because you'll realize your need for a savior. 
Everything in the Bible, folks, is pointing us to Jesus. The Bible is not just a rule book. The Bible is not just a book where we try to get some good tips to shape our life around. The Bible, most importantly, above all things, it's not a history book that teaches us history. The Bible, above all things, is a book that teaches us to know and to love and to come into a deep relationship with the book that, with the person that it is about, and that is Jesus Christ. Amen. That's what we use it for. So Jesus, when he's raised from the dead in Luke chapter 24, verse 44 and 45, notice what he says. He's raised from the dead. He's speaking to his disciples. And he says to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets. So Jesus has a high value of Old Testament, doesn't he? He says, everything that was written in the Old Testament, it must be fulfilled. And he's saying, I am the fulfillment of that. And notice what it says. And he says, and the Psalms concerning me. So he's saying, there's things that are written in the Psalms concerning me that if you go back and look, I can show you. And, and, and matter of fact, he had two disciples that morning that he was raised from the dead. And one of them was named Cleopas and another one was something else. And they're walking on the road to Emmaus. And it says that he started to un unfold to them. They couldn't see with their natural eyes that it was Jesus, but he started to take them through the scriptures and he took them through Psalms. So here's what I want to do this morning. We're going to go through a lot of scripture. Y'all going to put your thinking caps on? Let's do like this right quick. Put your thinking cap on. Amen. Put your thinking cap on. We're going to go through the Psalms a little bit. I'm not going to try to get too much and I might cut some out as we go, but we're going to go through the Psalms and I'm going to break down because when I was studying this, I was overwhelmed. As I was studying this week and last week, I was overwhelmed with how much scripture there is in the Psalms that are pointing directly to something about Jesus. Like, I, I mean, you could preach 20 sermons on this, but I've condensed it into one. And so I just want to break it down into the life of Jesus. Because one of the things that the Psalms does the best, let me, let me tell you all this. When we think about worship, we come into church and what we think worship is, is we think worship is singing songs and lifting our hands, and, and it, it, it's an aspect of worship. But worship is not true worship unless you actually know the character and the nature of the one you're worshiping. Amen. Anybody can come in and sing psalms, songs. Matter of fact, you can dance, you can do all sorts of things, and there's an element of worship in it. But my worship is more full when I know who God really is when I know what God's really like and when I have a deeper understanding of him and then from my heart I begin to understand the God that I'm worshiping and it pours out of a pure place. It doesn't just feel dry. It doesn't just feel like, man, I'm just in here singing songs, but it feels like I'm singing to the one that I know. He loves me more than I could ever imagine. He's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. He went to the cross for me. He took on flesh and became a man and he was raised again for the, from, on the third day for me. You start to realize those things, man, and there's a song that comes out of your heart that is more powerful than you could ever imagine. See, David could sing so passionately to God because he knew the God he was singing about. Man, when you start knowing and understanding, and what the Psalms do is they give us a knowledge and understanding of this God that we're singing about. So let's look at Jesus in the Psalms, and in your notes, number one, I want us to look at his incarnation. Now, for most people, that's a big, heavy Christianese word. It's like nobody, what in the world is incarnation? But if you go to a Mexican restaurant, you can get something called carne asada, right? And carne, it just means flesh. It means meat, man. That's what it means. It means meat. In other words, Jesus took on flesh. He took on meat. The Word of God was eternal. God was a spirit from everlasting. But He took on this body, this flesh, and he did it for a purpose. So I want to look at the incarnation. Now in Psalms chapter 8, verse 4 through 6, here's what it reads. 
It says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now, if you just read that, you would think, well, you know, that's kind of talking about me and that's, that's talking about us and, and, and that's really interesting and, 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 and you'd see that. But then you go to the book of Hebrews and the, the writer of Hebrews, which is most likely Paul, he pulls over and over again in Hebrews, they're pulling from Psalms to get what they understand about Jesus. Now, notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 through 9. It says this, and he quotes, he quotes this, and he says, For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place in Psalms saying, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Let's skip down to verse 14. It says, Inasmuch then as the children, that's you and I, have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. I love that. And release those through, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he's, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in those things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, y'all know when he was talking in Psalms about this particular one, who is the son of man that he was mindful of him? He's talking about the incarnation and he uses it to develop his, his understanding about Jesus. He says, what you've got to understand is that God created humanity and when he created humanity, y'all got to understand this, this is the craziest thing, the same way we, we, we are supposed, we were designed to have dominion over this earth. That means that this earth was supposed to do what we commanded it and what we, what we taught it to do, so to speak. But the problem was is that we were also designed to reflect God. And as long as we were in right relationship with God and reflecting the image of God and that was not broken and we were in that communion with God, the world would come into alignment. As we reflected God, the world would reflect heaven. Isn't that amazing to think about? It's amazing to think about, but the problem was that, is that, is that humanity comes and is tempted by the evil one. The evil one comes in and he tempts us and we fall to that temptation and we give in to sin because, because we're, just, we're led astray and we rebel against God and we disobey his commandments. And when that happens, something happens to the image in us. The image gets marred. Love turns into hate. Murder takes place. We realize our brokenness. 
And when we did that, we forfeited the glory of God. We failed to reflect God the way that we should. And there were some nasty things that showed up on the inside of us. And you and I experienced those nasty things every day when we look deep enough. And this is why we need a savior, right? This is why we need somebody to save us because we experienced this brokenness, this marred image of God. But see, what happened was is that sin came in and then we began to experience death. Do you know that you and I were not made for death? We were designed to live forever, but sin comes in, death comes in, then what happens? Creation itself falls. And the Bible teaches that right now creation is in this groaning, this longing for the manifestation of those who know that they truly are the children of God. And we see hurricanes and storms and tornadoes and all of these different things going on. And some people would say, well, that's the will of God. He's bringing judgment. What I want to tell you is that is a creation that is fallen and broken and yearning for the children and the sons of God to be made manifest and for Jesus to restore his order in the earth. Now, God saw that, all right, humanity has forfeited their authority, their dominion, and guess who took it? Satan took it. He said, I'm going to take the keys to death, I'm going to take the keys to hell and the grave, and I'm going to enforce the rule of death over all humanity. And I'm going to enforce the law of sin and death over all humanity. Because they have rebelled against God, I will accuse them before God night and day, and I will hold them captive in the chains of sin. This is what Satan does, and this is what he continues to do. And so God says, I love them so much. But the fact of the matter is, is I have given them dominion and authority over the earth and over humanity, and I cannot simply restore it to them as God on the outside in order to be a faithful high priest because they have taken on flesh. I must take on flesh the same way that they have it to restore what they lost. He could not have restored what we lost just as God on the outside. He had to become what we are to restore what we lost because it was in our position and in our control. And Jesus, therefore, takes on flesh. He is made a little lower than the angels. We're talking about the God of the universe being born in a manger, manger to a 14-year-old girl. The humility of God, that's amazing to me whenever I think about it. And when I start to think about that, I don't know about you, that produces worship in my soul. I get chills just talking about it up here. That God himself that spoke the universe into existence and the universes are still expanding because he spoke. And there are worlds and galaxies everywhere. And this God says, I will take on flesh. I will dwell among them. I will suffer the sufferings that they experience. I will enter into their lives. I will be a faithful high priest. I will take on flesh and blood just like they have so that I can go through what they go through and redeem them back out of what they lost. He took on flesh and blood, folks. And there's this incarnation and they're teaching that. And it becomes an essential teaching. There was a guy... Um, named Athanasius. Now, that's a very cool name. If I have a son, I'll probably name him that. <laughs> Athanasius. He lived, he was born about the year 296. And he lived to his, about, about the year 370-something. And he wrote this book called On the Incarnation. It's a very good book, about 70 pages, but it's pretty deep. And the guy wrote it, and he made this very controversial statement. He said this. He said, God became man so that man might become God. You read that, even when you say it, you're like, is that right? And I would say, not entirely right, but in some ways what he's saying is true. We can never become God, folks, but do you know that Jesus prayed that we might be one with him? He prayed that we might be one with him. And God sends a mediator. He says, son, I want you to take on flesh and blood. You become what they are so that ultimately in the end, they can be participants in the divine nature and they can become what we are. 
That does not mean that we are God. That does not mean that we can create the universe. It doesn't mean anything. But it means that we become one with him and we partake of his nature. We enter into the fullness of what he is, and that is love. We become one with God. Why? Because Jesus became one with us. He has bridged the gap between God and man because he's both 100% God and 100% man. Amen. This is good doctrine this morning, right? Good doctrine this morning. We, gotta have, we have to have an understanding because sometimes people come and they ask me and they say, Clay, you know, when somebody asks me what do I actually believe, sometimes I don't know what to say. This is a good sermon for that. You believe that God was eternally existent, that he's the creator of the universe, and you believe that that God loved humanity so much that he became one of us to redeem us. Amen. Now, Jesus, I love this because even in these Psalms, like Jesus will drop little, little praise nuggets in there. You know what I'm talking about? Take a praise break right quick. He'll take a little praise break in, in, in the Psalms. And in Psalm 8, 2, in the same Psalm that we just read from, if you read Psalm 8, 2, it says this. Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Now, if you go to Matthew, yeah, notice this. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. I just left that verse on there because I like that. The blind and the lame came in to the temple and he healed them. Okay, next verse. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna, notice this, the children. Man, I, I want our children to be raised in the temple. You know what I'm talking about? Where they cry out in praise and they understand what worship is, that we teach them that. And they cry out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David. The religious people got indignant. They got upset and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Jesus will say this all the time. This is why reading is important, folks. I know some of you don't like to read, but Jesus says like 20 times in the Bible, he says, have you never read? Have you never read? And he says, have you never read? And he's quoting Psalm 8, out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. In Psalm 8, it says, ordained strength. Jesus translates it to perfected praise. In other words, he's saying even the weakest among us, because I took on flesh, even the weakest among us now have been restored in authority and in power. And even when the babies begin to praise God, it will silence the enemy in the avenger. It will silence Satan. It will silence his lying tongue. It will silence his accusing tongue. Even when a child that has, because I took on flesh, even when a child begins to give me praise, it will silence the enemy. And he says, it is an ordained strength that happens through perfected praise. In other words, when we truly praise God because we know who he is, there is supernatural strength that comes into our lives when we learn how to flow in perfect praise. And perfect praise is not about how we praise, it's about who we praise. He said, your praise is perfect when you finally know the one that you are actually praising and lifting your song to. Amen. So Psalm 8, he busts that down. He breaks it up. Now let's look at the second part. His crucifixion. You know Jesus, though. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Y'all know. Y'all know the Bible. Judah means praise. He's the lion of the tribe of praise. And when we get a tribe of people that know how to praise God for who he truly is, all of a sudden I believe that lion begins to roar and it shuts the mouth of the enemy and the avenger, just like Psalms 8 says. Amen. Secondly, in your notes, let's look at his, his crucifixion in Scripture. His crucifixion. Now in Psalm 22, the Spirit of Christ, like we said, was at work in David. He wrote this over a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. I don't know if y'all know or not, but a thousand years is a long time. They call it a millennium. 
I mean, it is a long time. Ain't none of y'all going to live a thousand years until you get resurrected, all right? Psalm 22.1, though, if you look at it in Scripture, Psalm 22.1, this is a very familiar passage here. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus was on the cross, and, and, and in Matthew it quotes it, and he's on the cross hanging, and he understood that 1,000 years earlier, David, he would come through the lineage of David, and David would prophesy concerning Jesus. He would prophesy concerning what was going to happen, and Jesus understood that, and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me while he was on the cross? Now, one thing that you have to understand is that he is saying this because he literally entered into our God-forsakenness. You need to understand that Jesus saw our sins. Now, the good thing about Jesus is, is he didn't look at clay and say, well, you know, when clay starts to get things together, I'm going to reach out and help him a little bit. No, he saw me in my sin and in my ungodliness and chose to love me while I was still yet in that sin and said, I will die for him. Even if he doesn't turn to me, I'll die for him because I love him that much. He says, even in his ungodliness, even while he's broken, I'll do this. But the way that I'm going to do it is I'm going to enter into his sin. I'm going to take his sin upon myself, your sin, my sin, the sins of the world. And the sin was so heavy that the Bible says he sweat great drops of blood while he was taking this sin and it was being laid upon him. And when he entered into that sin, he entered into a measure of our God forsakenness. Anybody in here ever felt God forsaken? You just feel like, God, where are you? I have no idea. I feel you nowhere near. And you cry out in your heart, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you left me? What is going on? And in that moment, God, who had protected him, they tried to kill him and couldn't. And in that moment, when he took our sins, God lifted his hands and handed him over just for a moment. He entered into the fullness of our God forsakenness. And they took him to the cross. They beat him. He was, he was crucified. And while he was on that cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was taking our place, folks. That means that every time that you feel God forsaken, you can be reminded that you are never forsaken. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Jesus entered into your forsakenness in spite of your sins so that you could cry out, my God, my God, why have you so accepted me? Even though I'm not worthy, even though I don't deserve it, I know that I'm reconciled. I know that I'm accepted. Your blood has given me access back into your presence. This is what Jesus did for us. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that we could find reconciliation, forgiveness, and acceptance with God? In the same Psalm, Psalm 22, this is what you would consider a messianic psalm. Psalm 22, verse 7 and 8, it says, All those who see me, they ridicule me, they shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And in Matthew 27, you look at verse 39 through 34, it says, And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Isn't it amazing, though, that David saw that Jesus was going to be blasphemed, ridiculed, rejected, and mocked 
at his cross. He, David is actually seeing the crucifixion. David is going through something in his own life and he's speaking about it and he's praying about it. He feels forsaken himself, but all of a sudden God brings David into the reality of what Christ went through. And let me tell you something, this is exactly what God wants for you because you're going to go through moments where you feel forsaken, you feel lost, you feel broken, and you can cry this out and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he will remind you that Jesus is right there with you, that he took on flesh, that he entered into your pain, and now you are not forsaken. He is with you, and something switches in your praise because you remember that there is nothing that you've went through that Jesus didn't go through first. He's brought restoration. He's offering you this. But David saw this years in advance that they would do this on the cross in Psalm 22, verse 12. It says, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Now, what you don't understand about this, these bulls of Bashan, they were big old fat bulls. You know what I'm talking about? And I love a good bull, good cow, because they produce steaks. Amen. Somebody give glory to God in here. These big bulls, though, man, they were fed so well in Bashan that they were the biggest bulls in all of Israel. They had luscious uh, grass to eat from. They were the biggest bulls in all of Israel. And this is a picture of this word encircled. You notice he's saying big bulls have surrounded me. And the word surrounded encircled in the Hebrew language is literally crowned. They have crowned me. You see the picture. If any of y'all have seen the passion of the, of the Christ, you remember. And even in the scripture, it says that they put a robe on him. And they twisted a crown of thorns and they gave him a staff and they put the crown of thorns and pressed it down onto his head and began to bow to him and mock him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Those big bulls were the picture of the Roman soldiers that had surrounded him and decided to crown him with a crown of thorns. And David is prophesying about this a thousand years before when he took the crowns on his head. And I want you to understand that he received those crowns because he was, he, that was his coronation as king, folks. He became king in that moment for you and I, a suffering, dying Savior. It was foolishness. It was foolishness to the, to, the, to the Jews and to the Greeks. They couldn't understand what was going on, but he was dying for you and I. And he took those crowns. Those crowns represent the curse that comes on your mind. You know, if you read of the curse in the Old Testament, it is physical, mental, and emotional anguish over and over and over again. And Jesus is saying, I'm entering into your mental and emotional anguish because I want to redeem you from that. I want you to have peace in your mind. I want you to have peace in your soul. And he was taking that upon himself and those, those bulls were surrounding him. Psalm 22, verse 15. It says, my strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. When you study crucifixion, you begin to understand that literally you go so dry that sometimes they could not even open their mouth because their tongue would cling to the roof of their mouth because they had, all, of, all of your fluids would begin to drain out of your body and go down to your feet. Your feet would swell up. It, it was an awful death. It was a horrific death. Ultimately, you would die by choking on your own bodily fluids. And that's how you would, you would stop living usually when you were being crucified. Now, he was on this and he's crying out. And this is why even it, it, it actually quotes this scripture. And in John 19, it says, after this, Jesus, knowing all things, that all things were accomplished, he cries out and says, I thirst. He was experiencing that thirst because of that. Let's look at a couple more. In verse 16, it says, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. Notice this. They pierced my hands and my feet. A thousand years before, it talks about them putting the nails in his hands and in his feet. In verse 18, it says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. They're casting lots for his garments at his feet under the cross. And in Matthew, it actually quotes this scripture 
in order to, to prove that this is what was going on, that what they were writing in Psalm 22 was a reality. But I'm going to show you probably the most interesting thing that I found in this psalm, and it's in verse, it's in verse 6. Psalm 22, verse 6. Notice this. He says, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. I am a worm and no man. Now, if you, if you read, now you look this up. I, y'all know I wouldn't lie to you, right? That'd be weird if I would, right? I mean, I'm, I'm the pastor. Uh, but I am a worm and no man. Now, if you, in the Hebrew language, that the word for worm, like a normal regular worm, is this word called rima. And this, right here, this word for worm is a word named tola. And if you actually look it up in the Bible, it's translated scarlet or crimson, like the literal color, uh, probably 30 other times. And, and, and what would happen is, this is, a, this is a legitimate worm. And Jesus is saying through David, I am this particular kind of worm. This worm is really a, a very specific worm. It's called a crimson grub. Now pay attention to me for a minute. Y'all, y'all with me? It's called a crimson grub. It's a particular worm. Now, in Israel, they would actually take these worms off of trees and scrape them off of trees because it would make a dye that was scarlet or crimson, and they would use it to dye their priestly garments. They would use it to cover the tabernacle, to dye the cloth that was covering the tabernacle. So they knew what this was. When they read this, they understood exactly what he was talking about because what this worm would do, first of all, show me a picture of that worm. You got that picture? Now, that don't look like a worm, does it? This worm would be a long grub, but it would come up and it would attach itself to a tree and it would form a hard shell just like that. It would form a hard shell and it would even be in the shape of a heart sometimes they would say. But you see that red color on it. That's a crimson grub. It would would do it. Now, notice what this worm would do. One time in this worm's life, one time, it it would know that it's time to give birth and it knew before it went that it was going to its death. This worm, one time in its life, would be ready to give birth and it would start to climb a tree or climb a fence post or or climb something in order to attach itself to a piece of wood. And it knew going before that it was going to die in order to give birth to its children. And it would go up and attach itself to this tree the same way that Jesus knew he was going to die for you and me. And it would go and attach itself to to this tree and it would get a hard shell encased round about its children, the larva, and it would begin to hatch those eggs on the inside and the babies inside would feed on the body of the mother in order to survive and in order to live the same way that you and I. It covered it with this blood, with this, with this red liquid in order to protect it the same way that the blood of Jesus covers you and I in order to protect us and in the same way that we live by feasting on the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is in communion. Now, after the worms, the baby worms have been born, and the mother dies, and they have eaten the body, so to speak, it leaves a red, it leaves like this red substance on the tree. And those babies, notice this, those babies would be stained from the red dye that was released, and they would be red for the rest of their life, which is why they're called a crimson or a scarlet grub or worm, because they're covered by the blood for the rest of their life the way that you and I are covered by the blood. What's even more amazing than that is after... For three days, this is weird too, for three days, it would stain the tree red and so people who were going to get the dye, they would have to come and scrape that, that red dye off within three days after the worms had died because if they didn't, something would happen on the third day. On the third day, the red dye would turn into a white wax and then if you tried to scrape it, it would fall like snow off of the tree. 
Isaiah 1.18 actually says, you put Isaiah 1.18, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, in the Hebrew, tola, they shall be as white as snow, they, though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Somebody amen me this morning. Jesus is saying, I am that crimson grub that climbed that tree that was fastened to that cross. And David knew about it a thousand years ago. And he said, he was saying through him, if you want to know what's going to happen, you can look at that worm because God, listen folks, God, the things that he has created, he has hidden his glory in the things that he's created. You can look at an apple, you can look at a tree. And I'm telling you, if you begin to ponder on what God has done, he's going to hide his glory and his mystery in his creation. You see his beauty in his creation. You see it. He died for us, and that's what he did. And that is the most amazing thing that I've ever seen. But even in the midst of this, you get another little praise nugget, right? Psalm 22.3, we quote this one all the time. Psalm 22.3, it says, But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. We always quote it like this, that you inhabit the praises of your people. Now, in the midst of that psalm, here's what he's saying. When Jesus tore the veil, like when he was on the cross, you got to understand that in order to get into the presence of God, one man could go one time a year, and he would have to sprinkle the blood of a lamb seven times on the Holy of Holies behind the veil, and God would come in and meet the people there. But see, Jesus' blood did something for us because when that blood was offered, the veil was torn from top to bottom. And he's saying, now, God, you don't just come and dwell in a temple or a tabernacle where they go in and offer blood once a year, but now you dwell in those human beings where the blood of Jesus has been applied, and you have chosen not to just dwell in heaven, but when they begin to understand who you are and praise you and give you praise, you choose to dwell and inhabit in the praises of your people because that veil's been torn. Amen. I don't know about you, that makes me want to praise God. Take a praise break. Y'all laugh when I say that. My, you, do that so, you do that in a hardcore Pentecostal church, somebody goes, woo, you know. Y'all just laugh when I do it. I like that. <laughs> All right, thirdly, we're going to move through these last two real quick. Thirdly is his resurrection. 1610, 16.10, it says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol. This is David speaking again in Psalm 16. You will not leave my soul in Sheol, no, nor in Sheol... Y'all realize that when you, th- th- this can actually be translated hell in different places. Sheol was the abode of the dead. It's where dead people went in the Old Testament. They didn't really have it, have it uh, disintegrated between heaven and hell. They just believed that people, when they, w- they went to Sheol, they went to the abode of the dead. He said, you will not leave my soul in Sheol or in the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, P- Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, he's preaching on the day of Pentecost and he's trying to tell these Jewish people about the God that they just murdered and killed. And he quotes this verbatim. He he goes to Psalm 16 and he quotes Psalm 16 to them. And he quotes this verse. And then he says this about what we just read. In verse 29, it says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. Because he's saying David wrote this. But he says, he is both dead and buried. And his tomb is with us today. In other words, he's saying, now you know, God did let his body see corruption. He's over in that tomb. We could dig him up if you wanted to. That's what he's saying. He's saying, therefore, being a prophet 
And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body according to the flesh he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ that his soul was not left in Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit he poured out this which you now see and hear. Now when Peter preaches it he said you guys are the ones who crucified him but God has raised him up. God has raised him up for our justification. Now the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most essential things in the Christian faith. See we believe that God took on flesh, dwelt among us, walked as a man for 30 years on the earth but we also believe that he was crucified under the hands of Pontius Pilate and the Roman government and that on He was crucified and he went into the lower parts of the earth and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And in Psalm 16, David was prophesying about this and Peter is using it to demonstrate, this is true, y'all. Y'all know the scriptures and y'all know that David couldn't have been talking about himself because he's still in the grave. But if we know that this Jesus that we're professing to you has raised from the dead, that means that a revolution has begun. Because Jesus being raised from the dead gives a guarantee that every human being that has ever lived will one day rise from the dead again. But here's the most important thing is that every human being will be raised from the dead. You can guarantee it. The Bible even says that the ones that were died in the ocean are going to be raised up. Somebody said, well, what about the ones who were, who were cremated? Let me tell you something. If God can raise a dead body, he can take dust particles and turn it back into a body. Somebody amen me. He will raise every single human being that has ever lived from the dead, but some of them will be raised to a resurrection of righteousness, the ones who have put their faith in Christ, and some will be raised to a resurrection of judgment. And the key is you've got to understand that Jesus has demonstrated his love to a world and this gospel must be preached so that people can believe in him. And when they are raised from the dead, they don't face the judgment of God anymore because Jesus faced the judgment for them. But if we don't receive Christ, if people don't receive Christ, they're going to be raised to a resurrection of condemnation and judgment because they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it stands. But see, you and I have a hope. As Christians, here's what we believe. We believe that death is not the end. We actually do not mourn like other people mourn. There is mourning in death because we feel that sting of death, right? We feel that. But the Bible says, oh, death, where is your sting? It's lost its sting. Why? Because we know that when people die in Christ, it is not the end. It is only the beginning. We actually, there's something weird about Christians. In some ways, they look forward to death. Because it is the fullness of our transformation. It's when we finally see Jesus and we become like him. And we look forward to this. This is what the Bible calls a hope that we have as an anchor for our soul. It's an anchor to the know that no matter how bad it gets down here, man, if they torture me, torment me, and crucify me and let me die, when I take my last breath, I can take it with joy knowing that I'm going to be raised up on the other side. And I'm going to have a non-perishable body that shall never get sick, shall never die, shall never experience tiredness, and I will live with my Jesus and I will be like him and I will see him like he is forever and ever and ever. I will rule and reign with him. Man, that is a good glorious hope that you need to remind yourself of on a regular basis. This is what we believe as Christians. And it ain't just in the New Testament, folks. It's in the old too, praise God. Number four, his ascension and lordship. We're, We're closing it down here pretty soon. Psalm 68 verse 18, it says, You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. 
You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Now, this is quoted in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, you have ascended on high, you have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even the rebellious. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying after he was raised from the dead, we know that in his, in his physical glorified body, he was on the earth for another 40 days and he talked to men. But then they watched him ascend and he said, the same way that I'm going back to the Father to sit on the right hand of the Father is the same way that I'm going to return and come back. And when he ascended, he led our captivity captive. He's saying that when he raised from the dead and he ascended, he released authority back to you and I. He took the keys of death, hell, and the grave and said, y'all don't have to be bound in sin anymore because I've conquered it. You don't have to worry about death anymore because I've conquered it. And now I'm going to sit at the right hand of God the Father and I'm going to be restored. I'm going to restore order once again. Amen. And then he says, you have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious. And it should be translated even for the rebellious. Basically, he's saying right now on the earth, guess what? The Christ in you is receiving gifts from God in order to glorify himself in the earth. The Christ in you is receiving gifts from God in order to glorify himself in the earth. He has released those gifts because he has ascended. And here's where I'm going to finish in Psalm 110. Psalm 110. It says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. Now notice that first verse in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, set at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You actually see verse 1 there. Psalms 110 verse 1. Put that up, go back. Thank you. The first one is all caps. It's Yahweh. The second one is just, you got some lowercase letters. It's, it's Adonai. It's two persons in the, in the divine trinity. The Father said to the Son, Set at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. I love that. That's amazing. Now, Jesus, if you go to Matthew, I believe it is, notice this. Jesus quotes this. He says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Jesus sometimes sets you up. You ever had Jesus ask you a question where he kind of sets you up a little bit? he do that. He's tricky. They said to him, The son of David. We know who he is. He's the son of David. Jesus said to them, How then does David in the Spirit, in Psalm 110, call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Set at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Go to the next verse. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. I love that, right? Yeah, I don't think I'm going to question this guy anymore. All right, see you, see you guys. Head out. Jesus is a little bit smarter than most people, turns out, because he created the brain. But he uses this verse and he says, look, how is it that you, y'all got to understand this. He's saying the Lord, God the Father said unto Jesus, set at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Right now, God is currently seated on his throne. The Father is seated on his throne in heaven. And Jesus Christ is seated at his right hand in lordship over all of creation. And currently, through the church of Jesus Christ, God is bringing all of the enemies up under his feet. 
What are God's enemies? We're talking about poverty. We're talking about sickness, disease, death. All of these things that you can imagine that we see going on when we see out in our communities on a daily basis, man, people are are suffering from these enemies. And right now, I'm telling you, God is using some of you all. I know y'all. And right now, God is using some of you all to enforce the love and the victory, right, of Jesus Christ over these enemies. And we are slowly seeing them come up under our feet. And I believe with all of my heart that the more we understand what Jesus has done on the cross, the penalty that he has paid, what he has purchased in his resurrection, the more we, the more we step into that and just rest. I like what it says. It says just sit there. You don't have to do anything. The Bible even says that this, that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. You know, he's up there seated at the right hand of the Father and the Bible says, so are you. I don't even know what that means except for the fact that I I realize this, that Jesus has already done it. I don't see sickness gone yet, but Jesus has paid the price for it. I don't see death gone yet, but Jesus has paid the price for it. I don't see poverty and sin broken off of everybody's life yet, but Jesus has paid the price for it. And the more that we proclaim it and rest and set ourselves in it and establish ourselves in it, we're going to see those enemies coming up under our feet. Why? Because we are the feet of Christ. We're the body of Christ. And the more we get into that, we're going to start seeing these things. And I'm telling you, folks, right now, we're seeing things in our lives. We, you, you have to enforce these things in your individual lives, and we have to believe it as a church, that these things in, in our community, the poverty mindset is coming up under the feet of Jesus. The addictions and the bondage to sin is coming up under the feet of Jesus. Can you say amen to that this morning? He said, rest until, he says, set until I make your enemies your footstool. I want, we, we know that not everything is conquered yet. The Bible says that the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And when we're raised from the dead, that death is even going to come up under him and under his feet and under his footstool. I love what it says. It says, the Lord, verse 2, shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, I want you to understand that he's sending his strength out of his church. That's you and I. And he's saying this. He's saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Don't wait until sickness is gone. Don't wait until poverty is gone. Don't wait until the addiction is broken. Don't wait until the sin is broken. Rule in the midst of poverty. Rule in the midst of addiction. Rule in the midst of sin and brokenness. Because as you rule, you will overcome and you will see these things coming up under the feet of Christ. He's saying the the power is going out. Now this last verse is where I'm going to finish. He says, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. And if you look it up in the Hebrew language, the word volunteers, it literally means a free will offering. It means that we have this understanding of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. We see it clearly, church. And after this message, if we can't see it clearly, we need to like get some, you know, some solution. Clear out our eyes, some spiritual solution. He's done this for us. He's died on the cross. He has been raised from the dead. This is a true reality. Sins have been paid for, man. We can be forgiven. People can be saved. They can be set free from the power of sin. These things are a reality. And he says, when the people come to realize that, they will be free will offerings in the day of your power. I don't know about you. I read this just last night and I, and I was listening to worship music about midnight. And I was just thinking to the Lord. I was like, Lord, I love you. I want to be a free will offering. I've seen what you've done. And I know that this life is short. And I know it's not what I'm living for. I'm not living to see what I can get on this earth. I'm living for another kingdom. You said don't store up for yourself treasures on earth. 
They're not going to last. Store for yourself treasures in heaven. Uh, realize what I've done for you and turn your life over to me. Be a free will offering in the day of His power. His power is available for us this morning. And you can choose to be a free will offering. Amen. I want to pray for us right now. If you just bow your head, close your eyes just for a minute. Lord Jesus, we see what you've done. You've given your life on the cross, Lord, just like that crimson grub. Lord God, you fastened yourself to the cross, taking our sins so that we could be forgiven. And I want everybody in here right now, just I don't know where you stand, but if you want to experience that forgiveness from all your sin, you want to say, I want, I'm ready to become a free will offering for Jesus. I want to give my life to him. I want to experience his salvation. Right where you're at with your head bowed, just raise your hand and let me know. Just, just raise your hand and let me know.